0: I absolutely love the book of Revelation. This book has changed my life. It's changed the ministry we've sustained over the years. Whenever I've taught this book, I've watched the Lord work in the lives of those who join me in studying this book, and so that's why I extend to you an invitation to stay with us as we work our way through this book. We're having to do so, of course, in a rather concise way, but it gives you, I think, the framework in which you can go deeper and deeper into this book and you will be blessed. We're up to chapter 2, but before we get into chapter 2, I want to make sure that you have first of all seen the promised blessing in verse 3. It says that if we will really take this book to heart, we will really engage its truth, God promises a special blessing. Of all the books of the Bible, this is the only book where we find this. And so we need to dig in, and God says, I will bless you. Why not, before every program you listen to where we're talking about it, just ask, Lord, please let me experience the blessing that you promise in verse 3. Then, of course, John has this encounter with the Lord Jesus. But it's Jesus Christ, the Lion of Judah, in all of his glory. And John's overwhelmed i would encourage you to go back and and look at that and realize john is trying to describe something that's indescribable he is so overwhelmed by the glory of christ now when we read this we realize that's what jesus christ looks like right now and we need to realize that one day we will stand before the glorified savior And by the way, even in that description, there are going to be those remnants of the cross that are intentionally left behind in his person, so that when we look at him, his glory also allows us to see that he is the Lamb of God who was slain. So we'll see the the scars of the, the Passover Lamb, our Savior. And so we're going to stand before him. We're going to give an account for our lives, not for our sins, because even in that description, John talks about the forgiveness that is ours because of the shed blood of the Lamb of God. And then the Savior himself gives us an outline of the book. Write the things which are which John had just seen, the the experience of encountering him. And then John is told to, to write to seven churches, Seven distinct letters to seven churches where John had had a ministry. And then everything from there out is yet future. It's about what God's going to do when the day of the Lord comes on the earth. And that day could be soon. And so when we look at chapter 1, let's not forget the special blessing. Let's marvel at the glory of our resurrected Savior, the one that we will give an account for our lives to. And then let's look at his outline, and we begin to get into chapter 2, and we see how much he cares about the churches in Asia Minor, all the churches. In fact, after each church, he refers in the plural to the churches. So although he speaks directly to churches like Ephesus and Smyrna and the like, he's also speaking to churches that will exist all over the earth and over the centuries. And so when we go to chapter 2, here's what we read. Verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? And by the way, when we see the word angel, it's angelos. Uh, The question is, is it an angel, a supernatural being, or is it a pastor? I think the evidence probably leans toward the pastor of the church. So it's interesting that the pastor is given this message to share. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Those are the churches that Jesus is ultimately sovereign and in control. Now, there are times, of course, if your experience matches mine, that you think, well, Lord, it doesn't really look like you're in control here. He allows us to, well, tragically move away from his truth at times and not live out our lives as a community of believers in a way that honors him. But he's involved. He's watching. That's what these seven churches are going to indicate. We're going to see that he is going to commend them. He is also going to offer a rebuke to a number of these churches. So he says to the church at Ephesus, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So he's involved. He's there. What is he seeing, by the way, in your church? What's the atmosphere like? Does it honor him? Is he lifted up? Then Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. How you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So he's commending this group of believers. I know your works. I know what you're doing in my name. I know what you're doing to to promote the gospel. Your toil, in other words, the effort you're putting out, Your patient endurance, because they were facing challenges that would tax their energy. He says, but I know your endurance, you're pressing on. I also know that you cannot bear with those who are evil. In other words, you're not going to tolerate the evil. You're not going to participate in the evil. But you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. We need to be doing that in in this day in which we live. There are people that are self-proclaimed apostles. I mean, there are hundreds of them, I would guess, at this point that claim to be apostles. And you know what? They are not, just like in the case of uh, the church at Ephesus. And you found them to be false. Jesus goes on and says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. They were apparently paying a price for proclaiming who he is. They were suffering, but they were also enduring patiently. And they were bearing up because they were lifting up his name. So he commends them for all these things. And then, though, he... Verse 4 talks about something that obviously was of concern to him. He says, But I have this against you. (laughs) Oh, wow. The glorified Savior. I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, what is the nature of that love? Is it the love that we have for him? Uh, Several decades have passed since the church at Ephesus was founded, and John was the pastor and then eventually turned over the reins of pastor to Timothy, from all that we can tell. But it says here that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Love in the body of Christ. Love for the Savior. I think we should personalize this and ask ourselves, each of us, the question, have I lost my first love? Have you trusted in him? Have you placed your full faith and confidence in him in terms of his death on the cross that your sins may be forgiven? Have we lost our first love, our love for one another? Then Jesus says, remember, therefore, where you have fallen. In other words, remember the first love that you had, and now recognize where you are. Then he gives us an admonition here. He says, remember from where you have fallen. Remember what it was like when you had that incredible love relationship with him and with other believers. Remember that. Think about how far you've come from that. Then he says, repent, which means change your mind. In other words, I don't want to keep going down a path in which my love for the Savior has been diminished in any way. I want my love for the Savior to grow. Then he says, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you have this, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We need to examine our hearts, allow the Spirit of God to reveal if this could be true of us, this challenge in terms of first love. And then the Savior wants to address the church at Smyrna. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Notice that Jesus knows that they are paying an incredible price. But he makes a point that in the midst of the poverty of persecution, they are eternally spiritually rich. And then Jesus says this, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He's talking about a reward, a reward for accepting suffering in his name. And he says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Now, right away, my response tends to be, well, well, Lord, uh, you know, I know you could deal with that. You could make it so I don't have to suffer. But no, he allows us, doesn't he? He will allow us to suffer at times. And these are opportunities, opportunities to honor him. And notice that Jesus has a biblical worldview because he says, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Now, what does that mean? That means behind those people coming against believers at the church at Smyrna, Jesus sees a demonic force. He sees Satan doing this, and he's going to allow it. They're going to be tested, but he puts a limitation on it. Just as we have the limitation that was put on Satan and his work against Job, God allowed Satan to do a great deal, but Satan was still limited. And so it is here, another case in point. I happen to think that right now we're living in a day in which the Lord is pulling back a lot of his protection from our world and from our country. Then Jesus said, be faithful unto death, I will give you the crown of life. He's gonna reward those who have suffered and died martyrs' deaths, all for him. And when we look at this, we've gotta realize that we have a great lesson here in terms of the church at Smyrna. Their willingness to continue to proclaim his name, to go through uh, tribulation, To experience poverty at the hands of those who are opposed to the gospel. Those who will slander us. Those who really are working in the synagogue of Satan. They're tools in the hands of the enemy. They may not even know it, but they are. And then we will at times be tested, but the Lord says he is ultimately in control. He's going to limit the testing. And he calls us to be faithful. How far? unto death now let me ask you this are you willing to be faithful to him unto death i'm asking myself the same question are you willing to be faithful to the point where you will give up your physical life for his glory now it's rather cavalier oh, so absolutely But you know what i'm willing to trust that My desire is to say yes, and to mean it, and to be willing to sacrifice for the one who purchased me through his shed blood on the cross. And I would say that I am more than willing to be faithful unto death, and I will trust that the Holy Spirit would give me the courage I would need to respond that way. How about you? It's obvious that the Lord Jesus Christ cares about the church. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Well, here's a prime example of the gates of hell coming against the church at Smyrna. But the believers there, they were faithful. Faithful even unto death. And many will receive the crown of life. I hope that you can join us for this entire study. And to do so, why don't you sign up for our podcast, and then you'll have each and every message from the book of Revelation available to you so that you can listen at your convenience. Simply go to our website, livetheword.org.